Have you ever seen the Rob Reiner movie, The Princess Bride? A beautiful young woman named Buttercup lives on a farm. On the farm, there's a farmhand, a young, handsome man named Wesley. Oh, and she bosses him around. She's mean to him. But he always replies to her, as you wish. Eventually, she figures out that as you wish really means I love you. And she decides to love him in return. But you know, this is a fairy tale, right? And so, in fairy tale, as in stories of real, true love, others always lost. And Wesley has to go away to seek his fortune because he can't afford to marry Buttercup. And then she finds out that his ship was attacked by the dread pirate robbers. And there were no survivors. There are never any survivors with the dread pirate robbers. So about five years later, she finally gives up on true love and she allows herself to be forced into marrying the scabby Prince Humperdinck. Ladies, there's really no other way of saying it. He is scabby. So is she betraying true love? Why do we fall for these stories? This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic. Oh, so Buttercup's being taken away to meet and to marry scabby Prince Humperdinck. But on the way, she is kidnapped by three villainous characters. Vizzini, the Sicilian mastermind, Inigo Montoyo, one of the greatest swordsmen in the world, and the giant from Greenland, Fezzik. And when she's taken captive, uh, she tries to escape, but it's really no good. And then suddenly, out of the dark, looms another danger, another pirate ship following her. And they think, oh, it's the dread pirate Roberts. And so they take Buttercup, the three villains, to the prince, to the, to the cliffs of despair. And they climb up the cliffs, but the dread pirate Roberts follows them up. One by one, I hope you've seen the movie because I'm not going to explain the whole thing. But one by one, the dread pirate Roberts has to defeat the world's greatest swordsman. He has to defeat the giant from, uh, from Greenland. And finally, the Sicilian, uh, who is tricky, but in the end, defeated. And so he finally is captured, poor Buttercup, who is from the hands of one villain to another. But surprise, turns out he's really not a villain. It's her Wesley. But the real villain, Prince Humperdinck, is closing in on, on him. So now they have to escape into the dread fire swamp. I'm going to leave the story there. Because every story about love sounds so familiar. The stories that warm our hearts. There are all sorts of stories that break our hearts. But how about the stories that you love to listen to because they're so romantic and they take you someplace? Have you ever thought that the only way that we can know and appreciate a story about love, even when we know love can be so disappointing for us, that we can know and appreciate it because, well, we're Christians and we think about love in other than hormonal ways. You know, in the past, especially the Greco-Roman past, Romantic love didn't really exist in the way that you and I think of it. It really was very much about reproduction and, and property. And that 
if there was any passion in love, it was a sexual passion. If you uh, look at the Greeks, I'm especially thinking of Plato and Socrates uh, and the, the book, The Symposium, which is all about love, is gosh, they got different ideas about love, but none of them seem very modern. One idea from Aristophanes, the great playwright, is that when you're born, you're born attached to another human being, but something happened and you're ripped apart and your whole life you spend trying to find the rest of yourself, completing yourself in another person. We think of it as uh, the one true love that you have to meet in life. But that story's been around for a long time. That's a pre-Christian story, not really a Christian story. There's the story of uh, Diotima, and she's one of the few women that appear in Greek philosophy. And she talks about the ladder of love, the idea that love has a, a pattern to it, that there's a way out of it. And so she says in the symposium that first you learn to love a body, then you start learning uh, to love lots of bodies, and you know exactly what I mean. And then at some point, that exhausts itself, and you'll learn to love someone for their soul. And then after that, you learn to love the larger world that you live in, the customs and traditions of the world. And then after that, you learn to love love itself. That The idea of what is called Diotima's Ladder is that love goes someplace. Plato had this idea that all reality was just a reflection of these, of these images, these forms, these ideas that we participate in. It's been a very fluent, influential idea in, uh, in philosophy. And so when the gospel is written, it's written into this culture that already has these thoughts and traditions about love but it is a culture that focuses not on uh, romantic love like we think of it, but really just on hormonal love, what's called eros, the erotic. It's broader in, in Greek philosophy than just you and I and how we think about the erotic. But this idea that Diotima had, based on human experience, because that was, is what philosophy is all about, based on human experience, the idea that love can go someplace, and that, my friends, is what the gospel is about. Let's talk about the gospel of John. So the princess bride, true love, love lost, love that returns under the guise of the dread pirate Roberts, but turns out to be Buttercup's true love, Wesley, and then I hope you've seen the movie. If not, go see it. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. But you know how it ends up. True love prevails. True love wins out. True love has a redemptive quality to it. Diotima's ladder of love. Remember, she was the, the oracle, the, the Greek woman who speaks about love and, and convinces Socrates that love actually goes someplace. It transcends the merely erotic, that is the love of bodies, to the love of a soul, of who a person is, to the larger love of the, the human world, and then to contemplation and the love of love itself. Okay, that's just philosophy. We're not yet at Christianity. But the Gospel of John is very much about love that goes someplace. Do you remember the Gospel of John? It starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Uh, the reason the Gospel of John starts out that way is if you go to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, that's exactly how it starts out. In the beginning, when, when God created the world, and it's the whole story of creation, right? John is telling you that when Jesus comes, it's in the beginning. This is God's creative act, action extending into the gospel of Jesus. And what does he mean by that? So if you get a chance, just read chapter one and chapter two of the gospel of John. Here's what you're gonna find. It starts out, in the beginning was the word. It's the light and the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. I know you remember this. Then John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness, repent you vipers. And then Jesus presents himself for baptism. And this is the first day of the Gospel of John. And, and St. John the Baptist says, now he must increase and I must decrease. Then the next paragraph starts out the next day. And John is talking to a couple of his disciples. And he says, there goes the Lamb of God. And you remember that story. And then go to the next paragraph and it says, the next and the next day. And then it talks about how the disciples are gathered around Jesus. Then in the next paragraph, and it says, and the next day. Then it's what Jesus did on the next day. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like on the first day, God created. On the second day, God created. On the third day, God said. On the fourth day, God said. Because if you read through chapter that chapter one, the first day is John the Baptist, then three more days when Jesus acts and Jesus is rebuilding Israel. Can you count? That's four days. So you turn the page to chapter two, verse one, and what does it say? It says, three days later. So I'm gonna lay some arithmetic on you. Four days and three days is, you figured it out, seven days. So this wedding is on a Sabbath. Jesus is making wine at the wedding of Cana on the Lord's day. How many, how many miracles and signs does Jesus work on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day? And he does what the bridegroom at that wedding should have done, which was provided sufficient wine for all the guests. Who is the real bridegroom in chapter two of the wedding of Cana? My friends, it's Jesus. He's the divine bridegroom. And that's not the last story in the Gospel of John. I'm not going to go through everything, but the divine bridegroom runs through the Gospel. So you get to, I think it's chapter four. You go back to, I think it's the fourth Sunday of, of uh, Lent. And I had a little homily called A Woman, A Well, and A Wedding. And it's when Jesus meets the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well. And I said in that homily, because it's how you look at Scripture, when you see a man and a woman and they're meeting at a well, this is a, a love story. A wedding is going to happen because the Samaritan woman's been married five times, if you remember the story. She's broken Israel. And this is the divine bridegroom coming to seek out Israel, to make Israel his wife. Why do I give you that background? Today's gospel is from chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. So if you're reading along the gospel, you already know that Jesus is the divine uh, bridegroom. And so what's the context of this scripture? Well, it starts out with Jesus telling the disciples, 
He's going to be arrested and crucified, but he's going to rise from the dead. And he says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If there were not, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you also may be. Where I am going, you know the way. At this point, a little background is necessary. We know how you get married in America in the 21st century. The bride puts on a white dress, all the family comes, you have a, a singer, and there's a mass, and a marriage happens. That's not how it happened in the first century in a Jewish context. First, there was a thing called betrothal. That has kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, a betrothal was not an engagement. A betrothal was you were actually married, but you had not consummated and you were not cohabiting. And so you're legally married, but during the betrothal period, the bridegroom has to go and prepare a place for the bride. So maybe dad has a property, the bridegroom will build a a house for them to live in, depending on what their means are. And then he returns because there's going to be a wedding feast. And then what happens is that the bride, with all the things that she brings into the marriage, is taken in procession to the house that the bridegroom has prepared for her. And then the marriage is consummated. Uh, and it's a done deal. So think about that as to how you know a wedding takes place in ancient Israel. And ask yourself what Jesus is uh, describing when he says that his father has many dwelling places, that he's going to prepare a place for you, and that he will return and take you with him. Sounds like a wedding ceremony, doesn't it? And it's gonna be consummated on the cross. Why does the cross save? The cross is a wedding ceremony. The Last Supper, where this farewell discourse takes place, where Jesus gets on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. It's a wedding feast. And who is he marrying? He's marrying the church. And so the love of God is this redemptive love behind human love. It's the source that draws us back to this elevated, transcendent love. That's agape, the service, to learn to love like God loves. Well, doesn't Jesus say it? Who do you invite? You invite the people that can't pay you back to the party because that is how God loves us. So you learn to love like the Father. You become the image of God. You know, there's a lot of different types, typologies. Remember, I've been talking about this in the uh, Gospels. But the divine bridegroom goes back all the way into the Old Testament, especially like uh, the prophet Hosea uh, is, is a really good example of the divine bridegroom in the Old Testament. But there's a couple types that come together in this story. Do you remember when Jesus says, uh, you know the way, I'm going ahead of you and you're going to follow me and you know the way and... Uh, <clears throat> Thomas asks, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Uh, well, doesn't that sound a lot like the gospel from last week where Jesus says in John chapter 10, that's four chapters before this one, where Jesus says, I'm the sheep gate. 
nobody enters except through me. So just think a minute about this is about a love story. This is about Genesis. It's about the recreation of the human being starting on the Sabbath day. The sign of it is a wedding of this man and this woman where God himself provides wine. He gives life abundantly. What the heck good is a wedding party without, without wine? God brings the zest and the abundant life into it. And so all these things, marriage, baptism, the Eucharist, they're all ways that we enter into divine life because that divine life is consummated when the, we become the dwelling place of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And then Philip says to him, Master, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? That's at the end of today's reading. So it goes from a wedding ceremony to the way, like walking on a wedding ceremony where the bride is being taken to the new house. And then who's there? It's the true face of your lover, your creator, the God who calls you back to himself. It's Wesley with the mask pulled off in the, in the Prince's Bride. Why do we like the Prince's Bride? Why do we like stories like that? Because God has made us to understand that story and respond to that story so that we can get past these smaller experiences of love and that we might transcend merely the erotic uh, or merely uh, the intellectual love of another person, that we may learn to love like God loves, which is what our hearts are made for. Because at the end, uh, with the end, what our life of abundant grace is, is that the Holy Trinity dwells within us and we dwell within the divine life of the Holy Trinity. Think about this. When Jesus finally concludes and says, you know, he's done all these things, but we're going to do greater works. He says, you're going to do greater works than I do. What he's talking about is the sacraments. Which is greater? An elephant, which is huge, or the coronavirus? You know, how we think about size and importance uh, isn't really how the divine thinks about it. Which is more important, the temporal or the eternal? The temporal is all of creation has a beginning and an end. The eternal is before, now, and forever going forward. And so when the church goes out and it baptizes, uh, brings the Eucharist to people, confirms, forgives sins, anoints the dying, celebrates the marriage as the sign of this great uh, love of God for his people made present in uh, marriage, just like Jesus in the background of that wedding at Cana. What you're experiencing is the eternal in a temporal setting. It is God, the infinite and eternal, made present in the temporal, the finite, and the material. It's all what sacraments are. And John is all about God present in the material world. So now I'd like to kind of pull this all together. 
because I really like the movie The Princess Bride. I hope you've seen it and you love it too. But think about how you look out in the culture and you see the image of Christ reflected even when the persons who are telling the story don't know whose image they're talking about. The presence of God in the midst of stories about human love, even fairy tale love. So what makes Buttercup and Wesley's love so interesting, so enjoyable? You know, if they just continued to live on that farm, if they had never gone past that initial experience of love, would you have ever gone to see the Princess Bride? I'm guessing not. You know, it's Wesley's leaving and coming back. This is what breaks love open and takes it forward. And it reveals and condemns evil, right? Scabby Prince Humberdeek and the six-fingered man who killed poor Inigo Montoya's uh, dad. Uh, the evil is vanquished by true love. It, this evil Sicilian, Vinzini, who, uh, if you remember, you've fallen for one of the two classic blunders. The first being never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly lesser known, never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha, and drops dead. Well, these are, these are comic moments, but it's about topics that are serious topics in the gospel, but no less enjoyable. You know the difference, I don't know if you knew this, but the difference between a comedy and a tragedy isn't whether you laugh at it, it's what the ending is. A comedy always has a happy ending. A tragedy always has a sad ending. And so the gospel, is the gospel a comedy or a tragedy, given the definition I've given you? It's a comic story because it says that he's gone away and no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much poor Buttercup is yanked around by these villains, that he's going to come back and he's going to find her and he's going to save her. And that is the story of the gospel today. The gospel is the true story of true love. The divine bridegroom Christ for his bride, the church. The prince's bride is effective and heartwarming as a movie because it imitates this desire for love to transcend merely a human love that's in every single human heart. Love that was broken by the separation, and we're talking about Adam and Eve, is restored by the divine bridegroom at a wedding ceremony in the Gospel of John. And then the whole uh, romance is lived out in the Gospel of John, up to and including the wedding feast and his going to prepare a place for us. It's the whole story of how marriages take place in, uh, in, the, in the first century Jewish context. You know, there's this great scene as Buttercup and her true love Wesley are escaping scabby Prince Humperdinck and they're fleeing into the dreaded fire swamp because it shoots out fire to burn people or it catches you in lightning sand, which is even worse than quicksand, or you're attacked by ferocious rodents of an unusual size. And, um, Wesley sees that as the escape. Like Jesus says, the escape is through death. It's where Satan and death are conquered in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Wesley leaves Buttercup in the fire swamp. And here's what she says, because this line could be in the Gospel of John. She says to her one true love, we'll never survive. 
Wesley rightly responds to her, Nonsense! You're only saying that because no one ever has. Well, you can say that about death, can't you? Except, you know it's not true. There is one who has survived, and he's the divine bridegroom, and he's gone to prepare a place for us. You cannot understand the Christian proclamation of the gospel, why Jesus is good news, unless you see it as a love story between God and the church. This has been Father John Arnold, and this has been Oro Valley Catholic. And I hope to see you or hear you next week.